Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. And tonight we're going to... Well, it's kind of a prophecy update. We will touch on some of the things going on over in Israel with the war 12 days. And right now it's morning over in Israel, so day 13 for them. But as I was preparing the study, it was day 12 since Hamas came on a Saturday two weeks ago. And just horrific attack of mayhem and... uh just horrid things that we probably have all seen videos on. And we'll see more things as well. And we're seeing the news spinning one way and the other. And what's really been alarming uh, here in the United States, especially on our college campuses and universities, is the misunderstanding of the nation of Israel. And I think it's also alarming in the church as well that there's a strong misunderstanding of Israel, their usefulness. I was listening to a podcast on my way home this afternoon, and the host asked his guest, who is a Christian man and claimed to be a Christian man, and he said, I'll really have to think about Israel because we know that we are to pray for the people of Israel. But he said, I'm not sure if that's exactly talking about the nation of Israel that there's the people and there's the nation. And and so he just honestly said, I'm going to have to think this one through, which is fine. At least he's thinking about it. Uh, we are going to go back in our history book known as the Bible, back to beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And I'm basically going to take us through uh, overview that will have us end up in Genesis 22 and we're going to see the impact of the Abrahamic covenant and God's call to Abraham and uh, the covenant that God made with him that Israel has a place in this world. They are God's chosen people. And uh, I don't have a qualms about the children of Israel versus the nation of Israel because every nation needs a homeland and they have, since May 14th, 1948, been given the homeland, but they weren't given just any homeland. They'd actually talked about that in 1947. The UN voted for Israel to have a place, but they were actually talking about maybe a different place other than Israel proper. So that was part of the negotiation that maybe we'll send them over in North Africa or somewhere else but not Israel proper, but it's the land that God said it's first and foremost, it's mine. And he gave it to the children of Israel. And their history goes back quite some time. So we will look at that today. And another thing that bothers me in the church today is the idea of replacement theology. And I'd heard uh, someone say, I don't know if it was at this church, it wasn't a member of the church, maybe somebody visiting, or I was out and about somewhere else, uh, used to be pretty actively involved with love in the name of Christ, Love, Inc. And uh, I just remember somebody saying to me once that I'm a New Testament believer. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? And basically, to that person... A New Testament believer meant, you know, the two-thirds of the Bible that comes before the New Testament, we don't pay attention to that. So the majority of the Bible, I don't have to pay attention to that. That's the Old Covenant. I'm a New Testament believer. And I don't even know how you are a New Testament believer if you don't have an awareness of what took place in the Old Testament because the prophecy of the Messiah comes from the Old Testament, not from the New Testament. We have the Lord saying, I'm coming again in the New Testament for a second coming, but all the first coming prophecies came 
from the Old Testament. So in the church, there's also the replacement theology, and it's growing. This is from five years ago, but I think it still continues to grow in the churches. I haven't seen that it has let up in any way. And so the article title was Replacement Theology is Growing, and it was from One News Now. And so it reads, and this is uh, three paragraphs from that, the leader of the pro-Israel ministry is heartbroken that replacement theology has crept into the evangelical church. Jan Markell, founder of and president of Olive Tree Ministries, made that admission after looking at a newly released study from LifeWay Research. According to the survey, 28% of evangelicals embrace replacement theology, the claim that the Christian church has fulfilled or replaced the nation of Israel in God's plan. Now, a greater percentage, 41%, rejects that idea, but 32% aren't sure. So the toughest thing about the pro-Israeli ministry faces is replacement theology, Markel says. We encounter it on a daily basis from all denominations, and I think the thing that is most concerning us is how it is infecting, not affecting, it's infecting evangelical denominations probably in the last 20 years. A survey reveals that younger evangelical believers, 18 to 34, are more likely to say that Christians have replaced Jews in God's plan, while 30% disagree and 36 are not sure. So it's been five years since that article has been written but it is gaining a greater foothold in the Lord's church and I think the conflict in Israel will just kind of re-emphasize it. It's either going to wake people up to the truth of God's word or drive them deeper into their replacement theology as a pastor, a local pastor in this area once said to me in kind of a raised voice turn. Um, expression, you can't tell me that God is in that nation over there. And I said to him, I said, you might not see it, but God is surely at work. And just because you don't see it or understand it doesn't mean that God is not at work in the nation of Israel. And then we, we look at the Bible itself, and we believe in the church that Jesus is coming again. Well, he's not coming to Washington. He's not coming uh, to L.A. He's not coming to England. He's coming to Jerusalem, where a temple will be one day for the Jewish people. And so we have to follow it all the way through. If the church has replaced Israel, then... Is the Lord not returning again for his church in the sense of for that thousand-year millennial reign? Will he not come through the eastern gate that the Muslims have tried to block and seal up to prevent the Lord's coming? Will he not come and, and make his place in that palace? And then we take it prior to that, the Antichrist sets up his kingdom for those seven years in the temple in Jerusalem, according to the New Testament. So for those New Testament believers, they need to actually understand that Israel is a large part of the story in the New Testament. Now Israel is engaged in a war with Hamas in Gaza and the north. They're having skirmishes with Hezbollah over the last week and a half, and many are questioned questioning things are just swirling and even yesterday we saw protests and uh, the hospital that in Gaza the Hamas instantly claimed that Israel bombed a hospital and killed all 500 there and then there are reports as of yesterday as well that the Palestinian uh, rocket actually hit the garage next to it, caught it on fire, caused the explosions that destroyed the hospital. And they even have talk from Hamas uh, to people, and that doesn't surprise me at all, that intelligence is listening to what people are saying, but talking and saying, that was ours. What do you mean? No. He's like, yes, that was ours. And so that has erupted 
in protest at embassies around the world. And so it's crazy right now. Flights are being canceled or delayed. Uh, certain parts of the world, governments are saying, get out of these areas and it's not safe. This is blowing up in Israel right now. So I thought tonight it'd be a good time to overview God's work in the descendants of Abraham through Isaac to form a nation of Israel, both the past and the present, and God's covenant. So I titled this Genesis and Israel, an overview of God's work in the nation of Israel. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't take it too far. I took it to basically four significant events in Abraham's life where God made covenant with or interacted with Abram about the forming of a nation. And the first place that we should all know is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now in Genesis 10, we are given 70. My notes said seven here. But I know it's 70 nations. I forgot to put the uh, T-Y on that. 70 nations that came from the descendants of Noah, his three sons, and their name for us in Genesis 10. In Genesis 11, we discover the nations formed God having them with a common language. Now, God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they said, let's make a tower for ourselves, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, Genesis 11:4. So God said, fill the earth and the people said, no, let's just make a name for ourselves, build this tower, unless we are scattered across the whole earth. So in Genesis 1 through 11, Moses records about 2,000 years of earth history, while in chapters 12 through 50, it's got about 243 years where we learn of Israel's history from Abraham to Joseph. And it begins, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make a great nation, make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a covenant that God uh, made with Abraham while he was in his homeland, which is over in the area of uh, what we would know as Iraq today, era of the Chaldeans. He called him from a distant land to come to a land that he said, go to a land that I will show you. And so it almost gives me the sense that he needed to begin the journey with God before God would ultimately reveal the location, the place that he would bring him to. And the Lord went on to tell Abraham that he would bless those who blessed his nation and those who would curse his nation, he would curse. And he closed out by saying, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know ultimately through Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come. That blessing is available to all families throughout the whole earth, all nations, all 195 nations can receive the blessing of Abraham, become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ today. So I'd already mentioned that May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation once again. And our president at the time, President Truman, was the first leader in the world to recognize Israel's Jewish state. Only 11 minutes after its creation, he called and made and acknowledged the state of Israel, even though some of his advisors um, didn't really want him to do that. And some thought that it was a good response because of the Holocaust and that it would also benefit American interest having a democratic nation there in the Middle East, which 
We know that America is involved in the world because of American interests, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. But we should be a people who support the Jewish people as God has birthed them in the question in Isaiah 66, 8. Now, properly, this is speaking to the nation of Israel who are going into the Babylonian captivity. But Isaiah 66, 8, it says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a nation or shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. So Israel, uh, shall a nation be born in one day? Well, it did happen. In the sense, we can take it to when Israel came out of Egypt in a single day. There on Passover, when God judged and passed over the Israelis that night, judged the Egyptians by killing the firstborn of cattle and people. And the very next day, Israel went out. When they crossed the Red Sea, they went out of Egypt as slaves, and they formed into the nation of Israel. They were the people of Israel. They were the people of God, but God was forming them in a nation, and he did so at a single day. He also did it at the end of the Babylonian captivity, and when the Medes and the Persians took over, and then they controlled the region, Cyrus, king of Persia, freed Israel to call and called them to restore and build Jerusalem. And we find that in Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. Also, Daniel 9, 25 speaks of some of this. And then a third time was, as I had mentioned, May 14th, 1948. This is modern day for us, although I wasn't around in 1948. But we have seen the impact that Israel has had upon the world. Now, they were a young nation, May 14th, 1948. And this really is important because it plays into what's going on in Israel currently and the war that's taken place there. The very next day on May 15th, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Lebanon swept into their newly birthed nation from all fronts Without a proper army, Israel, men and women, Israeli men and women, who had been battle-hardened in World War II, fought to defend their nation until the Arab coalition called for a truce in January 7th, 1949. So a little over a half a year later, there was a truce. That was the very first war. They became a nation on one day. They were engulfed in a war on the very next day. And so I mentioned that that plays into what's happening today. What Israel being given the land, and there were people living there in the area of Israel at that time, and the Arabs from the nations of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Lebanon, they told the people there, leave we will push them into the sea and then you can have the property back. And so Israel had been actually purchasing land from the late 1800s and beginning to restore and rebuild the nation of Israel. So it wasn't like there was no Israeli presence and suddenly on May 14th, 1948, ta-da, we're here. No, they had been there they had taken the swamp-infested, mosquito-infested areas in northern Galilee. They planted eucalyptus trees to dry up the waters to make a beautiful garden out of the area there. They now have, you know, uh, just a few years ago there was forest fires there, so they lost some of these trees, but they replanted forest. And uh, I was going to say some of those trees now... 80 to 100, 125 years old, planted by Israelis. But they had never pushed Israel out into the Mediterranean Sea. Now we saw this in the protests. Look at the signs. 
and they're they're not great signs some of these signs uh, they're just cardboard with black ink on it but I've seen it a few different places and the chant is from the river to the sea and so this is pro-Palestinian from the river to the sea they're saying all the land is ours so they're not fighting for uh, a little extra freedom in the states of Palestinian state today they want it all, just like they wanted it all on May 15, 1948. Just leave. We'll push Israel into the sea. You guys can have the land back. That's what they're after. And though we don't support everything that the Israeli government perhaps does, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Paul said in Romans 11:25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullest fullness of the Gentiles come in. I think in the church today we have many who are wise in their own opinion and they do not see the significance of the regathering of the nation of Israel and the connection to last day prophecies. So Abraham's 75 years old. He was obedient to God's call. He came from the area of Ur of the Chaldeans. He went into the land of Canaan along with his wife Sarai. And by the way, his name's not Abraham yet. He's Abram. And he had his nephew Lot. And he had all that he had, both possessions and people. Now, in Genesis 14, 14, we learn that he had 318 trained servants who were ready to go to battle. So that's quite a large group, uh, caravan that Abraham was on. 318 trained servants who were born, it says, Genesis 14, 14, 318 trained servants who were born in his house. So they've been with Abraham for a while, and they were warriors. So it was a pretty large group that he came with. So we only have name for us, Abram, Sarai, and Lot. But 7 and 8 tells us, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is at Shechem. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and from there he moved and he went to the mountain east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. So Abraham, two altars built in the land when he first got there. He began to call upon the name of the Lord. He was, for the most part, a Bedouin. He had no permanent house or structure. But he was to roam the land from north to south, east to west. And God promising, wherever your foot was set, I will give you this land. And so the promise to Abraham, we find that call in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Abraham's obedience to the call of God. Now in Genesis 15, it begins in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So we already read Genesis 14, 14, about Abraham's 318 trained men. Well, Lot had gotten captured in a battle, five kings against four kings, and Lot had gotten captured, as did Sodom and uh, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham took his men and he retrieved everything. Not only got his nephew back, but he got all the people back. He got all their goods back. And the kings offered him a reward. And he said, no, I pledged before I went to the battle that I would not even take a thread so Abram did not want it said of the nations in that area that they had made him rich. He was going to trust in the Lord. But he did take a tithe. He gave it to Melchizedek. And he is now 85 years old in Genesis 15. 
He has no heir. In verse 1, God said, I will be your shield. Perhaps he's thinking of repercussions from going against five kings that maybe they would come and want to get him. And God said, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. But also, Abraham's complaint to the Lord, I have no heir. I'm going to end up giving it to my chief servant. His name was Eliezer. He goes, I have no heir. It's going to all go to Eliezer. And the Lord said, verse 4 through 6, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This one shall not be your heir. And the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. So he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In verse 18, on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I have given the land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then notice the people, if I can do justice in reading these Old Testament Bible names, the Kenites, the Ken. Kenesites, the Cabmanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and the Jebusites. I wanted to read those names, though I may have done it poorly on some of those, but no Palestinians mentioned. We're going to get to that in a moment. Where did the term, the title Palestine, come from? And it used to be that in your Bible maps if, maps, if you have an old enough Bible, you can look at the maps and uh, it might say Palestine in your Bible map, but this one thankfully does not. They have it as the nation of Israel. So where that came from, we'll get to that in just a minute. But when we think about the promised land, we often think about the area of Israel, of what we see today. And they have equated it to the size of the state of New Jersey or that of Lake Michigan. But when God promised, did you get that in verse 18? From the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So this takes it all the way over to Iraq and down to Egypt. So quite a bit more than what Israel encompasses today. God's covenant with Abraham. We notice the nations that no Palestinian is named. And this is because um, Palestine came after a Jewish revolt from 132 to 135. It was the emperor Hadarin who was just at this point. They'd already destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70 with Titus. And we know that, and we often refer to the A.D. 70 date we often forget about the other revolt that took place in AD 32 through 35, that at that point, there was a lot of things that happened. They destroyed the temple in AD 70. In AD 32 to 35, once the Rome took control, they destroyed 50 forts, 985 villages, killed 580,000 Jews, and afterwards, permanently banned Jews from setting foot in Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city as a Roman colony. They plowed Jerusalem with a yoke of oxen. They sold the Jews, changed the name from Judea to Syria, Philistia, Israel's perpetual enemy. They named it after the Philistines. And so Palestine and that we had in our Bible maps and stuff at one time, that came from actually a Roman emperor who was so mad at Israel that he changed the name of the land, and he thought back, it's like, who has been the nemesis of Israel throughout their history? It was the Philistines, and so Palestine today, they're not descendants of the Philistines, but they've come from the surrounding nations. It represents a mix of the local inhabitants from the countries around there. And we often hear about the Palestinians in Gaza, but there are in Jordan and other countries, there are refugee camps that have been set up since 1948. So they said, leave your land. 
We'll push Israel into the sea. You can have it back. And they have been held hostage and really in a political pawn to do exactly what's going on right now, to have the world look at Israel as the enemy, as apartheid, and not to see them as a nation that's been called by God. In reality, though, uh, there are 195 nations in our world. I, I looked it up. I think one time they said there was 196, so it depends on what you want to call a, a nation. But I want to remind us, Acts 17, 26 and 27, from one blood, every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. God has made from one blood, and we might be different nations, but we're one people, and that oneness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So God called Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. God said, Eliezer is not going to be your heir. One will come from your own uh, loins. And then he told him to look at the stars and said, so will your descendants be. Now, I want to get to chapter 18, but I want to fill us in from 16 to 18. Abraham's 85 years old. And he's in the land of Canaan now, around 10 years. God had promised a son that would be from his descendants as numerous as the stars. Now remember, Sarai is 75 years old. Anybody see any 75-year-old pregnant women running around? It was unusual then, too. Even though uh, Bible days, they lived long lives, uh, Abraham would say to God that we are beyond years. This can't happen. But Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But Sarai, in chapter 18, decided to, or chapter 16, decided to give God a helping hand, gave Hagar to Abraham as a wife, that she might bear him a son, which she did. That son's name is Ishmael. And uh, there is a bit of the conflict. Islam today tries to... Uh, bring their descendancy back to Abraham through Ishmael. But Ishmael had not only Isaac, Ishmael, but he had six sons by another concubine too. So there was actually eight sons. And so um, not all of Islam can trace through Ishmael, but many can trace back to Abraham through his sons that he had with the two concubines. We'll get to that in a moment. So chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, God came to Abraham. He's 99 years old now. He's been in the promised land for 24 years. God said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between you, or between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. At this time, God changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations. And in verses 10 through 12, it says, This is my covenant, which you will keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. That shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child of your generations. And he who is born in your house and brought, bought with money from the foreigners, who is not your descendants. So they were all, if they belonged to Abraham, they were to be circumcised. And this was a standing law that stands to this day. And at this time, Yahweh changed Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah. And uh, commentators are not quite sure what Sarai's stood for. Some say it meant contentious. But they all agree that Sarah means princess. And so 16 and 18 of Genesis 17, I will bless her, give her a son by you. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
So God understood that even if Sarah would become pregnant that very night, he would be 100 years old, she would be 90 years old when Isaac would be born. So he offered him Ishmael. Now Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman Hagar. And Isaac would be the son of the free woman Sarah. For Ishmael had been a work of the flesh. They were trying to help God out. Usually when I try to help God out in a situation, it ends well bad in my life as well. God knows what he's up to. God promised to do a work of the Spirit to give Abraham and Sarah a son. He had promised that to them. 24 years earlier, he would keep his promise, although it took 25 years to fulfill the promise. So Genesis 18, the Lord came to Abraham with two others. Now this is prepping for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the two others we know are angels that would end on end up going into Sodom. But uh, that's not really part of the Genesis 18 account that I want us to get to. So three, the Lord and two others came to visit Abram. Abram asked if they could stay, if he could wash their feet to refresh them and set bread before them. And he made the best that he had, cakes made from fine meal, meat prepared from a tender and good calf. Don't give me that old, old and uh, not too tender calf for Jesus for the Lord. Give me a tender and good calf. And he presented these along with milk and butter. Now that's interesting right there, Genesis 18.8, because if you're in Israel today, you know that Orthodox Jews do not mix dairy and meat together. But here they had milk and butter with the meat, so they'll have to deal with that. I have no problem with it. They sat it before him, stood there under the tree, and they ate. In verse 10, the Lord said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. Behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah was listening. You know, Bedouin tents aren't too thick. And she laughed, and the Lord asked about her laughing, and she said she didn't laugh. But the Lord came back in Genesis 18:14 and asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is always to be no. So the Lord reiterated his promise in verse 14. He said, at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. Sarah shall have a son. So in Genesis 18, 18 and 19, we find four purposes that God had for blessing Abraham. He said that he would become a great and mighty nation, number one. Number two, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. Number three, that he may command his children, his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. So God wanted to make him a great and mighty nation, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him that his children would learn to do righteousness and justice. And number four, that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has spoken to him, that only begotten son. Romans 4.13 tells us, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It was by faith, and all Paul is arguing is that the law came right around 600 years later. So Abraham wasn't accounted righteous before the Lord because he kept the law of God, because the law of God wasn't given until the time of Moses, but because of faith. Now Abraham is commonly referred to today as the father of three nation or three religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And Paul refers to Abraham here as heir to the world, the father of us all. So the issue, I went to Got Questions on this, gotquestions.com, I believe it is, or .org, but pretty good 
Christian website where you can ask questions, and um, they have a lot of stuff there. But I talked about the ask the question about Ishmael, and and this is their bit of their article, two one long and short paragraph. Who are the descendants of Ishmael? And there's a popular theory among Muslims and some Christians that Arabian Muslims are direct descendants of Ishmael. And in fact, Muhammad was a major proponent of this idea, claiming to be a descendant of Ishmael according to the Quran. There is most likely some truth to this theory according to the missionary Kenneth Fleming. What we know for certain seems to support the theory that Ishmaelites are, at the very least, a major element of the Arab genetic line. But also then it goes on to remind us that Abraham had a third wife, Keturah, who had six sons through her. And so we have modern Arabians, as the article would say, can trace through the lineage of Ishmael, but not all Arabs would come through Ishmael and maybe some of these coming through uh, the descendants of Abraham's third wife, Keturah, who had six sons as well. But it's in Isaac that your seed shall be called. So God's promise to Isaac and thus becoming the children of Israel. So some quick facts. And I did this. I'm coming to my fourth and final point. We're going to go over to Genesis 22. But I wanted to get an update. I did this on Sunday. And uh, it's day 12, quick facts. This comes from Harbinger's Daily. And they, um, I get the email every Sunday. So uh, they email these quick facts to me, but you can go to their website and they're there on the left-hand side. And they just give an update. I think there's seven or eight bullet points here, seven. And here's what they have about the Israeli-Hamas war. It's day 12. Over 1,400 Israelis, 291 soldiers have been killed, and 3,968 have been injured. IFD has notified families of 199 being held hostage in Gaza. Over 6,500 rockets have been fired by Hamas toward southern and central Israel from Gaza, with Lebanon and Syria also firing from the north. Israel has struck over 2,600 Hamas targets in Gaza and killed over 1,000 terrorists. Israel notified 1.1 million in Gaza to evacuate, gave them 24 hours. That ended on October 14th, one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. uh, On October 7th, the Hamas gunmen invaded southern Israel, kidnapping, raping, torturing, killing specifically targeting women, children, and elderly. They had planned for, I'd read, they planned for over two years for this. October 8th, the Israeli security cabinet voted to declare war the first time since 1973. So they've had operations, but to use the term war is a big deal. So I wanted to just give a final update on Israel because I want us to finish out on a faith Notes from Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It not only tells about Abraham's great faith, his love, his obedience to God, but it's a great example of God's love toward us as well. In a typology, um, when we relate Abraham to God the Father and relate Isaac to Jesus, his son, So verses 1 through 3, Genesis 22, it came to pass after these things. God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Menorah, Moriah, sorry, Mount Moriah. I should have that down. Go to the land of Moriah and offer them a burnt offering to one of the mountains that I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering. They rose and they went to the place 
which God had told him. So God, first we note, God told Abraham, take your only son. At this point he had two sons. Ishmael was the firstborn son, but God did not see Ishmael but a work of the flesh and not a work of the spirit. So Isaac was the son that he was referred to here. Galatians 4, and 23, Paul explains, For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. But he who is of the bondwoman was according, born according to the flesh, but he of the free woman, free woman through promise. I'm trying to read too fast for my lips to work. So on the third day, he arrives, verses 4 through 6, to the mountain, it's Mount Moriah. He told his servants to stay with the donkey. And he said, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and knife, and two of them went up together. So the third day, they arrive at Mount Moriah. Uh, Moriah means ordained or considered by God. Abraham went up to worship with Isaac. And the Bible says the lad... It's a Hebrew term that can mean boy or young man, or um, it can refer to a servant as well. But Abraham's faith being revealed in the statement to his servants where he says, we will come back to you. At this point, only Abraham knew what God had asked him to do, to offer his son on the mountain that he would show him. So, the author of Hebrews explains this a little bit to us in Hebrews 11:17 through 19. He says, By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the third day, significant. Abraham saw his son for three days as dead. But on the third day, in the figurative sense, his son was resurrected back to life. 7 through 19 of chapter 22, we find that Moses, uh, Abraham went up the mountain to worship Isaac as they were going up, asked, saying, look, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And this great, Prophetic response, Genesis 22.8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So this statement, God will provide, we know at that time God provided a lamb, but God did provide himself the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So significant, this chapter. We find that Abraham is a great picture of God in this Accounts in Genesis 22, they both had only begotten sons whom they loved. They both offered their son as a burnt offering. Uh, it means total consecration. They both received their sons back from the dead, Abraham figuratively and God literally. Both called brides for their sons. Isaac's bride was Rebecca, and Jesus' bride is the church. Isaac and Jesus are also great in the sense of we see in Isaac a little bit of Jesus as they were both obedient sons to their father. They both carried the wood for the offering. Isaac for the fire, Jesus was the cross. They both were offered on Mount Moriah, the place where God showed Abraham. Personally, I believe that's where Jesus was crucified. They both rose again on the third day, Isaac figuratively, Jesus actually. Both received and loved their brides. And God did provide the lamb for the offering, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who ever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. So God will provide. It is Jehovah Jireh in the Hebrew. And God has provided his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins, but also to be the Lord and Savior of our lives. Father, we thank you for this overview of Abraham and these great promises that you gave to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, 15, 18, and 22. And getting a little bit of the history, because in our world today, in the church, there are people who don't understand the right of Israel to be in the land. And so there are those that are saying and agreeing with those who are saying from the river to the sea that it should all be to the Palestinian people, none for Israel. That's always been the desire for many, Lord, to extinguish the people that you had planted. But Lord, you have a greater plan and purpose not only for the nation of Israel, but for this world. And it appears, Lord, that we are living in days where those plans could soon be accomplished. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to the last day signs. Help us to be about our Father's business, to share the love of Christ with as many as we can. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.